noise, make 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 noise. Before you say anything, let me just let me just get a couple of things off off my chest first. Um, okay. I am. I if anybody who knows me knows that I'm a man of conviction. I, I can stand alone. I don't. I don't. I don't run with the crowd. I don't do the popular shit. I see what I say and I feel what I feel. And you don't have to like it. There are things that each one of these people on this live have done. I might not like it. I might. Some people love Trump. We can agree to disagree. But on this one, I have a, I have a certain feeling. I want to say this, and I don't want you to say a word. I want you to let me say what I have to say, and then I'm going to talk to you. Okay. First of all, the idea to do this interview came from Ali from the St. Lunatics, uh, Nelly's right-hand man. He's one of the most true and righteous people that I know. Um, I watched the documentary at his insistence, and which you all should watch after this discussion. I, I want everybody to watch it. Um, and I felt the need to reach out to her based on what I saw. This woman was the NAACP chapter president in Spokane, Washington. Um, okay, she's known for, quote unquote, being a white woman who passed or passes being a black woman. And I start by saying this, and this was partially jokes when I was on High 97 when this all took place, and I said it five years ago on my radio show. Here's where I stand with it. I can understand pe black people being mad at somebody white who passed, I mean, somebody black who pass themselves off as being white to get white privilege and get over. But how do you get mad at somebody going in the other direction, giving their white privilege away, and, and coming to be with black people, which are the systematically oppressed group? The black people are taking on the stigma of being uneducated, uncouth, janky, not knowing whether a police encounter is going to turn out good. We're stopped over four times more than other races. We're always being looked at as the suspect or the person not to be trusted. The stigma of having bad credit, um, uh, quietly being oppressed, from lack of opportunities, uh, uh, being kept out of certain neighborhoods, and, and having a harder time gaining employment and everything. And on top of that, why would you be mad at somebody that took on African-American studies, African studies, joined the NAACP and rose in the ranks. So it's one thing to join the NAACP, but to, run, to raise the president, you had to do something. You just couldn't be sitting around, sitting on your ass. Take it however you want to take it, people, but honestly, I, I really don't give a damn. This woman, to me, is blacker than 85% of the people I know. The only two people I know that, 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 that know more black knowledge and, 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 and facts and however, my man, Alain Bay, Alain Bay Brad, whose father was uh, Mr. Brathwaite. You can see him in our When They See Us, the Netflix special about the Central Park Five and my man, Sean C. Um, as far as features are concerned, tanning, booty implants, all of that kind of stuff is copying black features. And there are many people right now that are tanning themselves, getting, getting um, butt implants, all of that. And they're, and, they're, and they're people that are not of color. We're not arguing with that. So how do you get mad at her? Kim Kardashian did a whole photo shoot in blackface. I ain't heard nobody say nothing about it. This woman has a son named Langston Addicts. That's Langston Hughes and Christmas Addicts. If you don't know about who they are, go to Google and figure it out. And for the people who said she lied about her race, 
I just told you, I said this before and I'm going to say it again. This woman was out there dealing with Black Lives Matter before there was even a Black Lives Matter movement. You think about that. She was on the front lines back then. That was 2015. Was, Black Lives Matter didn't even come in until 2017. She has an impressive knowledge of African-American history, literature, and the civil rights movement. And the final thing I'm going to say, because I want to be clear about everything so you know where I stand. The one thing I love more than anything is people who live in their truth. Gay, transgender, uh, if you're a snitch, if you're a cooperator with the government, if you're a slut, if you're a whorebag, long as you live in your truth, I'm good with that. This woman lived in the truth and she was vilified for it. And finally, I've said it 10 times on here, I'll say it another 10 times. There are people, the people who say, oh, she lies, she told, told the truth. There are bigger people doing more lies that affect people in a worse way than anything that I heard that this woman said. And that's where I stand, Rachel Dolezal. That's it. That's where I'm at with it. And that's where I stand. And when we had the conversation, I told you, I watched the documentary and I watched how people vilified you. They, they would come and say, oh, no, no, Rachel, it's all good. We got you. And then when they get on the camera with you, here they come fucking vilifying you. I, I, I did that, that speech to let you know that I'm not about that kind of shit. I don't, I don't do that. This is where I stand. I don't have a problem with standing where I stand. And I want to start with this. Growing up, what was your experience like growing up? How did you grow up and, and how did that play into the person you became? Yeah, so um, thank you for saying all that, first of all. And yeah, growing up was um, kind of a weird experience. It was almost like growing up in the 1900s, like the early 1900s, because I, I was born on the side of a mountain in Montana in a teepee um, with you know, no resources. So born into poverty, um, into a very cultishly religious household. So it was, it was tough, you know, like, like, um, I was working to buy all my own clothes and shoes since I was nine years old and, um, never felt loved by my parents, my biological parents. I was always kind of, you know, just punished for, for existing, for being a girl in a very patriarchal household. Um, it was also a very racist household, you know, so white supremacist, um, patriarchal. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of painful even to just talk about it. You know, I don't like talking about my childhood a lot, but this whole situation has forced me to go there, you know, um, again and again and try and explain to people how I came off of the mountain in Montana and then ended up at Howard University or ended up in the NAACP or whatever. So. But yeah, it was a tough childhood. I got teased all the time as a kid, you know, for, mm -hmm. for my artwork, you know, since I was three years old, um, I was, I always drew black people, you know, I was just like, you know, melanin was beautiful to me and curly hair and braids was beautiful to me. And at age three and four, you don't have an agenda, you know, you're not trying to prove anything. It's just what comes natural to you. You know, you just, you just do what you, um, what you love, you know, so Anyway, um, yeah, so childhood, childhood kind of sucked, and there's a lot of trauma from, from that, being molested by my older brother. Um, he also molested my adopted sister as well, and um, so, yeah, that, that was pretty, pretty crazy, when, trying to deal with that. What was the point that you started to adopt and dig into black culture? 
So when I was a teenager, I started to read books um, like the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, um, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. I mean, there's so many books that spoke to me because I felt, um, you know, even as a girl, I felt like I was a survivor of sexual trauma. I was a survivor of being teased at school and pushed out and being the other in, in a pretty much all-white society, because it was like a, a tiny little town in Montana, population 3,000, approximately 3,000 of those people were white. So um, the, the dividing line was class, you know, the haves and the have-nots. And I was a have-not, you know? So I was trying to always prove myself as far as like, you know, working on the mountain to earn enough money to buy those Nike shoes so I could be accepted at school and not tease uh, for my homemade clothes. Um, so I started reading books that made me feel, you know, like a sense of connection with people who struggled and I gravitated toward black history, um, and novels as well, you know, fiction as well. And when, when I was a teenager, so when I was 14, I, I kind of became a mother to my adopted siblings. So throughout, I, I actually withdrew from public school and had to homeschool because my, biological mom, um, kind of like those plantation women that sat on the porch drink, sipping their lemonade and iced tea. She, she said she had chronic fatigue um, syndrome, which was self-diagnosed. So she was too tired to take care of babies. And we have four, four black babies in diapers at the same time within, um, you know, two babies within five days of each other, age-wise, two babies within eight months of each other, age-wise, all from different places. But they had adopted these kids in order to prove their religious pro-life stance and to avoid paying taxes so they could get a tax write-off. And then basically they just had their daughter, me, take care of all the babies. <laughs> so so um, I felt an immediate connection with my siblings, my adopted siblings, and my love for them um, kind of also was another reason to like dig deeper into black studies. Mm. Now, now, of course you immersed yourself in reading and, and doing all that stuff and studying. Um, when you did that and you were taking care of the kids and you started to identify with black culture, how was that received by your family members? That was not well received at all. Um, in fact, like I was the only person in the family who took the time to learn how to do black hair. So I ended up being like the, the only braider in Montana in that area for any and every adopted kid who came through um, Troy and Libby, Montana. And so I started doing hair. That was kind of perceived as weird. Like, why would you want to do that? Why were you interested? Why do you read all these books, um, you know, black history books? It also was kind of considered, um, you know, like, like deviant in some way. But I, I had been beaten for being, you know, other or thinking um, differently from the other family members since I was, since I could remember, even, even as a three and four year old child, like, you know, I got beaten for being like demon possessed because I was like dancing a certain kind of way and that was too sensual, you know, or you know, for drawing my, you know, draw a self-portrait. And I drew myself as a little black girl with braids, curly braids. And they're like, what the hell? You know, like, what kind of satanicness is this? You know, or whatever. So it was, it was that kind of 
that white devil, I, you know, and I say that in a way of like, there was evil behind um, the white parenting process in, in the sense of like that um, colonial mindset of judging and punishing anything that was not in sync with that energy. And I just wasn't, my spirit was never in sync with that energy. So I got punished all the time, you know, and I got straight A's. I over, I was an overachiever because I was trying to earn love and I, and I never could, you know, um, never could be good enough to, cause I couldn't change who I was. <laughs> so, um, I tried, but I just, I never, I never, you know, you can't change it your never, soul. It never, it never worked out. At what time right. did you start, at what time did you start to change your appearance to pass as biracial, biracial? And what did you use? What, you, what did you use to do that? So it didn't really happen in, a, in an intentional way. Um, I actually went to college in Jackson, Mississippi, right? And when I arrived, I looked like Little House on the Prairie. Um, you know, we had homemade dresses, long dresses. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was like cult, cultish lifestyle on the mountain. So I came out of the mountain, I got to Jackson, and I moved into West Jackson, which is the black neighborhood across the, uh, literally across the train tracks um, from, you know, North Jackson in Mississippi. And um, so I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't think like, like I looked, I definitely didn't look black from what, you know, perception would be on the race uh, scale, but people assumed because I lived in that neighborhood I was, I started tutoring 25 kids after school. I was doing the work. I started the African-American history course on campus at my college, the first course to ever exist. They didn't even celebrate Martin Luther King Day. I started that, you know, a big petition to get that holiday, you know, day on, not a day off. Um, I was the historian for the Black Student Union. <laughs> so a lot of people started kind of seeing that. And I feel like they interpreted that then as, oh, she must be part black. So without even having changed, you know, no tanning, no hair changes, it was just like, well, she's probably like really light skin, like pass, like she could pass for white or mm -hmm. she's an albino, you know, like I got called like, like red bone, light skin, albino. And I'd always stop people and explain like, no, I'm really white from this mountain in Montana and blah, blah, blah. And they would just look at me like, we didn't need to hear all that. And it's okay if your mom had an affair. You don't have to pass for white. It's like, we know you're really black because no, you know, no white woman in Jackson, Mississippi is doing all this other stuff. So um, it was that contrast with the white community that first um, kind of made other people start identifying me as like, what are you? You know, like, are, like what are you mixed with? And then um, my black girlfriends in West Jackson, I was braiding, I still braided hair, you know, so we braid mm -hmm. hair on the porch in Mississippi. Um, and so one of my girlfriends was like, why don't, you know, let me braid your hair. And I was like, well, you know, is that cool? I mean, she's like, yeah, hell yeah. Like imitation is the highest form of flattery and to copy is the biggest compliment and all stuff. And so that was the first time I, I actually had my hair braided and then of course um it changed the dynamic with the younger girls because instead of the little um girls who i was braiding their hair you know instead of them trying to like play in my straight hair and be like oh you have princess hair and i always like kind of like 
you know, twist in my stomach, like, uh, you know, like, no, I like your hair. You have pretty hair. Um, so when I had braids, it was like, oh, like you, you know, like you have braids like me and we have braids together. And, and it kind of like broke down that white hair as superior type of thing. And so I liked that dynamic, what it did to my interactions with children, because it really, you know, like lit, lit up the faces of the little girls who like, I was braiding there now I'm wearing braids and it's like, yeah, cause braids are beautiful. Right. <laughs> you know? So, um, and then after that, like when I, when I wore braids, I would notice I would, I would get even more of that. Are you mixed? Are you light skin? You know, just even people didn't even ask. They just assumed like, Oh, you're a really pretty albino. You're, you know, blow, whatever, whatever people said, I was just like, okay, <laughs> you know, and I didn't argue with it. I stopped inter interrupting and saying, no, I'm from Montana and all this stuff because it seemed to create like social distance you know it seemed to like say no i'm really white i'm really this other person and it seemed to be more confusing than helpful um to the conversation so i would say that um i went on like this for for 10 years you know for for quite some time where i just let other people identify me and i didn't really feel the personal agency to say this is who i am and I didn't, so when, when that happened, it was, um, 2010, I got full custody. I sued my parents for child abuse and won full custody of one of my little brothers. And, um, he became my oldest son and he didn't want people at his high school and, you know, his peer group to know that he had been adopted. And so I thought like in the back of my mind, okay, I can't just let people, you know, say, oh, you're white, you're mixed, you're, you know, albino, you're whatever. I have to kind of, you know, sort of like keep this um, on one note. Like I have to kind of like simplify this process a little bit and he's not mixed. So as long as I'm light skinned then that's fine, you know, people aren't gonna ask those questions. So for, um, at that point forward, I, you know, started making sure that like I tanned a little bit more. I never wore my hair natural since 2010, like to this day, like for the last, you know, 10 years. Um, I also would say that, um, but it wasn't hard because my facial features kind of like always were that borderline, like, what is she, you know, cause I have like a bigger nose and I don't know, like my, my features just are what they, like I haven't had any booty injections or you know, so, you know, enhancements or whatever. I just, this is just how I look. So, um, yeah, that, that helped because a lot of his like high school teachers as counselors were, you know, they'd ask me like, what was it like to be a teen mom? And I was like, Oh, it was busy. Cause it really was that what they didn't know is I actually was taking care of four babies, you know, yeah. but what they thought, I knew what they thought was that I give, you know, I gave birth as a, as a teenager, which I hadn't, but at the same time, I've been taking care of him since he was two weeks old, you know? Um, so there was truth to that. So it's, it's kind of just more complex and more nuanced than people saying like truth and lie. Um, I, I did that to protect somebody I loved from being socially ostracized or from being reminded of that pain that was associated with the adoption and being, you know, beaten with baboon whips by the parents and all the kind of tra trauma and painful stuff that was associated with that adoption. You know, 
any any mother would step out and do whatever the hell they have to do to protect their child from mm. emotional pain or physical pain. So, well, I mean, yeah. you, you did what you had to do. I mean, for anybody that's had an older brother, my brother's 11 years older than me. And when my, you know, my, my parents were working and most of the time I spent with my brother. Like I pretty much raised my brother so I can understand what you're saying. Being a white woman and now you're walking around with black hair, black features, what are your observations about how black people are treated? How, how, how are you absorbing that and what are you thinking? Well, I'd already been all too familiar with how black people are treated within even, even my own biological family from the, the moment that my adopted siblings had arrived. And um, so I knew, I was well aware of racism. And also, of course, you know, not just from reading, but firsthand, firsthand witness to that. And in Mississippi, the same thing. So I already knew the drill, you know, um, and I knew that showing up, I was going to be treated different. It wasn't going to be that, like, what are you? And then we're going to operate on the basis of that, you know, because if if given the opportunity to explain yourself, sometimes it would change somebody's mind, right, on how they're going to treat you. But I took the good with the bad. I never said, like, oh, I have white parents, therefore, you know, cash in on white privilege. Um, for example, when I directed the Human Rights Education Institute, every white female and white male director before me received $70,000 salary. When I was recommended by the outgoing executive director, who was a white male, he, I overheard him tell a staff member, you know, Rachel is a colored gal and she could probably do this job for like less pay because she's so passionate about the work. And, you know, she probably needs the money because she's a single mom, right? And so I was paid 36,000. So I was paid half the salary of, you know, white male, white female predecessors with, with actually a higher level of education than one of the white females that had run that that institute, and so um, that's a black woman's salary, right? You know, I could, that would have been a perfect time to say like, "Oh, excuse me, <laughs> you know, I have white parents, so um, shouldn't you be paid?" You know, but I I never, you know, I I actually felt like the truth in that situation is that yeah, they're going to see me as a black woman coming into this role with a black agenda. And the truth is I do have, you know, I am pro-black and I do have a black agenda in terms of making this world a better place for my black sons. And I moved that institute in a direction of black history programs, um, of standing up against the white supremacist groups that had their headquarters in North Idaho where, that, where the institute was located. Um, so in many ways, that was an accurate thing for them to perceive me as, as being you know, black or in his words, colored. I was like, Bob, we don't say that anymore. When I, <laughs> I was like, who says that? You know, like, right. like they're, 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 you know. That's, but out anyway. middle, that's out in the middle of the yeah. sticks talk. That's, that's like crazy out in the middle of the sticks, sticks talk. Um, yeah. So now you move forward, you, you get to Spokane, Washington. How do you wind up getting in the NAACP? So it was because of my work with the Human Rights Education Institute I actually expanded that. It was in North Idaho, like 30, that's 30 miles away from Spokane. So it's right there in the same place, basically. Um, so people in Spokane 
admired not only my work with the Institute, but I started the first Juneteenth celebration in North Idaho. And a lot of people from Spokane came over to that. And we had like Buffalo soldiers on horseback. We had uh, black history presentations, a big exhibit, um, food, you know, cookout. And it was off the chain, you know? And so they're like, well, hey, we want this kind of thing ha to happen in Spokane. Nobody's doing that in Spokane. And, um, you know, we have like a larger black community over here than in North Idaho. So why don't you come over here and, and do the Juneteenth program? So I, start, I actually started the Inland Northwest Juneteenth Coalition in Spokane. And, you know, so it just built from there. I actually didn't run for president. And by the way, the president of the NAACP for chapters is an unpaid position. Um, all the offices are unpaid except for the national officers. You know, those are the only paid positions in the NAACP. Mm. But yeah, so that's how I got that's that's how I got nominated. The treasurer and the secretary actually not put my name on the ballot because the incumbent was running, you know, again for office and the chapter was actually going to um, be closed down if he would have won re-election the chapter was in danger of, of being um, like losing their charter after 95 years in operation because they didn't have the minimum requirements of eight action committees and they were in a deficit financially like um, they they owed dues um, to regional and national and so I came in and when I was elected president we went from 30 members to 220 within five months and we went from negative in the bank to plus 14,000 in the bank and moved the office from obscurity um, you know in a back church office basically down to Main Street right next door to the legislative offices and so that created a lot of momentum for the work you know for the the actual work of of the NAACP to get going in the community. So, yeah, that's how that came about. I didn't actually choose to run for president. There was no application, you know. For, mm -hmm. um, I was just, my name was put on the ballot, and I heard about it the next day. And you, and, then, and there you go. Our people, you're just tuning in. We're talking to Rachel Dolezal. And I, I'm actually going to get into that later on where you change your name. We'll talk about that momentarily. Uh, every night I do this at 6 p.m. Uh, tomorrow night I'm going to have Dave Mays from The Source, the founder of The Source magazine, very legendary magazine. If you're new to the show, follow me so you can find out who I'm going to have one every night. Back to Rachel. Um, so now... I want to know what event created the situation where you were outed? What, what, what happened to put you in that situation? So there were two things. One was um, the police killed a black man at the jail, Lorenzo Hayes. And I was, at that time, not only the president of the NAACP, but also the chair of the OPOC, which was the Office of Police Ombudsman Commission. So as the chair, I was supposed to directly um, kind of, you know, interact with the mayor and hold the chief of police accountable. And um, I also was teaching as at the time. So that particular incident, there were 13 white male cops that were responsible for killing one black man at the jail, Lorenzo Hayes. And I, uh, the chief of police called me and some other black community leaders in. He called us in and told us this is not a Black Lives Matter moment. 
Don't talk to the press about it. Don't tell anybody. They 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 talked to us before they even told the family that he had been killed. So basically they're trying to get way ahead of the process and, and shut it down before it ever got and, and still to this day lorenzo hayes's name is not on the the list of black lives matter names but it should be because he was a father to seven kids he was taking it his his um white fiance showed up at his place and there's a restraining order his neighbors called the cops because they knew about the restraining order against him that you know his fiance was basically forcing him to violate by showing up he got the cops showed up and arrested him and took him into the jail and i saw the video the confidential videos of that and threw him on the floor he he vomited and then they held him down in his vomit and suffocated him and he died you know cardiac arrest and so um i was trying to hold hold the chief of police accountable i didn't shut up i did i did go to not the mainstream press but we had a black newspaper in Spokane, and so I talked to the um, the Black Lens about that. They did a big cover story um, about Lorenzo Hayes. I flew to Baltimore and met with Marilyn Mosby and marched for the Freddie Gray protests. Freddie Gray had, had been killed just the month before Lorenzo Hayes. And so that uh, the police actually started following me with a private investigator at that point. And then what converged at the same time is that my biological parents were trying to protect my older brother, my, their only white child who, you know, claims whiteness and, you know, is like, is like them, basically. Um, so their oldest son, he molested me, as I said, and my little sister. And my sister, once she got out of um, the institution, they institutionalized my sister and um, one of my other adopted brothers when they were 13 and so when they got when they turned 18 they aged out she kind of said come get me and so i was like i'm there i picked her up i'm like what do you want to do with your life and she said i want to you know get into college i want to get a driver's license and i want to sue josh and so i was like you know sue him for what and i didn't know and so she told me i was like oh you know I'm, i was heartbroken that it happened to her too but he was arrested and indicted after she filed those charges. The parents then posted bond for him. That was a jury trial that was gonna happen that summer. So we had just gotten our summons and I was her key witness because I'm his biological sister. She's not my biological sister. Um, I'm on her side. And as long as I was credible, I was a professor, I was an NAACP president, um, you know, all of the things that I was doing in the community, he would have gone to prison as a child molester, probably died in prison as a child molester, you know, possibly because, I mean, she was six and seven. There were more than 30 instances of sexual assault. He was 26 and 27 when he did that. And so, um, you know, like there's no excuse. And what happened was the parents went on national television and said, she's a liar. She's a fraud. She's a con. And those words stuck. And as, as long as liar is like what shapes people's perception of me, like the one word that they feel sums up Rachel Dolezal, um, that, that jury trial got shut down. And my sister never got her day in court because um, I was, I was the, the only way that, that the DA was gonna break that he said, she said 50-50 tie of, of that, um, that case. So 
That so, that was really heartbreaking, you know. But so, that's so, that's why the parents did what they did. And they would have never, let's be clear, they would have never gotten the national spotlight in the media if it wasn't for the cooperation and the help and assistance of the police. Because the police, you know, connected with the media and their little private investigators connected with the parents. And then they, you know, they... Yeah, within 10 hours, my life was over. Wow. 10 hours. So you, when did you... When you didn't know that it was happening, and then, and then you didn't know that that was happening, and then 10 hours later, it was a problem. So you didn't even get a chance to sense whether there was going to be a problem, whether there's going to be backlash or anything. It just happened that quick. Yeah. Now, now, now there will be people to say, okay, um, you know, there were people that are going to discredit you, and there will there'll be people to say, oh, well, she lied. Or she told untruths about other things. Had that had those untruths been told before that case or after that case? Well, almost a hundred percent of those allegations are untrue. Like when people say so what happened is when, when people said when people heard these white parents who they assumed because they're white, saying they're white on TV on her times, um, they assumed that they must be telling the truth, right? And so these poor people whose daughter is so deviant and so, you know, like, you know, disowned her whole family and whatever they want to, you know. So people took their side and just ate up everything they said. And that became then the basis for questioning everything in my life. Now, did I lie about hate crimes? Hell no. Hell no. Who would do that? I had kids. My kids can attest to, they were there when the, when we woke up in the morning and found nooses on our porch and all that kind of stuff. But the police, just because the police never caught a suspect, which I actually, my opinion is that the police were actually part of that. There are white supremacy police officers, just, you know, FYI. You know? Wow. They do exist, especially in North Idaho. So, um, you know, there are five hate groups that have their headquarters there, the neo-Nazis, the birthers, the Aryan nations, the, the uh, white knights of the Ku Klux Klan, and the militia. And so, um, you know, all five of those groups hated me. And yes, I got death threats. And yes, we got nooses and swastikas and all that stuff. Just because they didn't, didn't arrest a perpetrator does not mean that I made that up. I would never concoct something to terrorize my children like that is just so sick and disgusting i actually became a gun owner i had a concealed carry permit i carried a gun everywhere with me a little 380 in my briefcase when i taught classes because i was scared for my own life you know it was it was to that level because because the white supremacy um groups up there believe that if you are mixed then you're a bastard child and you don't have a soul. So it's not wrong. They explicitly said it's not wrong to kill Obama or Rachel because they're bastard children. Now, once again, I didn't say like, oh, excuse me, I have a soul because my parents are white because like, you know, that's, that's fucked up that they even believe that mixed, you know, like that that's the basis of having a soul. So, I just, I proceeded to just be myself. And once again, people were reading not only my appearance, but people were reading the energy of my work. And in, in you know, many ways, like 
that was absolutely 200% true. You know, um, all my hair clients, my, my braiding, weaving, all my hair clients that I had at the time, they could care less. They're just like calling me like, are you okay? Like, are you still gonna be able to do my hair? <laughs> That's, you know, like, they're like, I don't give a shit who your parents are, you know, like, but everybody knew that I had grown up in Montana. Um, I had two father figures in my life that I actually felt unconditional love from. One was in Jackson, Mississippi. He died when I was a junior in college, um, Spencer Perkins. He was black. My other, my other um, dad was Albert Wilkerson, who became my dad in the North Idaho area where we moved, where he actually happened to be um, with his wife. And, you know, he became a grandpa to my kids. My kids don't have grandparents other than, you know, adopted grandparents that show up for them. So that was very real. That relationship was real. It wasn't fake. You know, I was there when he died on his deathbed in 2018. He passed away from cancer and you know, like, like for people to say, oh, she made up a black father just to say, you know, just to, just to, you know, somehow make her lie more believable, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like that, that hurts because, mm-hmm. you know, the truth is he is my dad and anybody can be a father. Not everybody can be a dad, you know? I, you know, so. that's a hundred percent true. And by the way, people, if you, if you have not seen this document, documentary, it's called The Way to Divide. It's on Netflix. After watching this, I highly suggest you go see it. So now, when I watch the documentary, mm-hmm. it goes to the part where the reporter asks you, were you black? And I looked in your face, and it looked like you were processing. What was actually going through your mind at that moment when he actually they asked you that direct question? That's a hell of a direct question to ask somebody on camera what was going through your mind yeah well he didn't ask me if i was black that would have been an easier question to answer but yeah he said are you african-american and i had never actually identified as african-american i still don't because um in black history that's you know that's a very specific term um blackness can be um codified as cultural philosophical black values etc um we all go back to a black mother we're part of the black human race i mean there are you know like ways to to defend that as far as african-american i hadn't hadn't identified as african-american so what was going through my mind though first and foremost when he asked that was do i want to explain the difference between black and african-american to this dude in dirty white sneakers on the side of a street you know and number two um my sister's case because he had just mentioned that he had talked to larry ruthann the, the biological parents. Um, and I knew that if he had talked to them, that was poison water. That was immediately, that made it about her case. And so I needed to be very careful what I said, because I felt like a yes or a no, I didn't, want to, I didn't want that to ruin her case, whether I said yes or no in that moment. So I was like, I gotta leave this with no comment. But I wasn't expecting that, you know, because the whole interview was supposed to be about the hate crimes that had just gone down the um, hate mail that had come to the NAACP uh, mailbox, which actually, by the way, came to three different mailing addresses for the NAACP, um, not just that post office box. So when they say, oh, you know, it didn't have a stamp, a postage stamp on it, therefore 
it was planted in the mailbox by the former NAACP president. They tried to get me to blame him. I was like, hell no, nobody black is going to put lynching photos in somebody's mailbox. Like people don't, you know, like, no, that nobody's even going to print those off of their printer. You know, like that's like tra traumatic imagery. Um, so, yeah, so that was that was like what was going through my head. I was like, what do I do to protect her case? What do I say or not say? And at this point, I should just walk away. You know, even though it makes me look bad, but I'm going to walk away because I don't know, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to damage that. And it, and then it, it went viral, you know, and they just played that little clip. They didn't play the whole interview about the hate crimes. They just played that one little clip over and over and over. So now, now, yeah, that, now, now, walk, now you, you doing this and now you're walk right. He cuts off the camera and you're walking away, right? He's right. walking down the street. What's happening here? Are you saying, "Oh no, this is this is this is bad"? Oh no, this is going to turn bad? But you say, "Oh no, nobody." What, what, what's in your mind there? Because now you know it happened. Now you know you were thrown in a situation that was kind of dirty. Did you think that it was going to become the firestorm that it that it wound up becoming? Because it, 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 it hit it hit everywhere. It hit me. It hit I, every person well, of color in this country. I mean, I'm not stupid. I knew it'd be it'd be a it'd be something to deal with, but I thought it would just stay local. You know, mm -hmm. I thought it, it was just going to be a local mess that I was going to have to sort through and deal with every last person that I knew and, you know, talk through it and, um, you know, either negotiate it and stay active in my positions or they're going to judge me and I'm not going to have those positions. But I never would have guessed in that moment that it was going to go viral globally, like international news. Um, I also wasn't really thinking, to be honest, about myself in that moment, because when I walked away, I actually, so I was meeting with this reporter to do this interview that I had to do about these hate crimes because I was, the, you know, chapter president and the OPOC commission chair. And so it was part of my job description to do the, you know, to show up and, and you know, talk to this issue. But what I was thinking is that I had arranged to meet my sister at a coffee shop, like, one door down from where we were standing so I was going to meet with her because we had just gotten our jury summons for her court case that was that summer and so we decided to meet for coffee and talk about it and I walked the, the main thing on my mind was I don't want these cameras going to her and so I'm walking this way <laughs> and it was just a Lululemon store honestly like I just walked into Lululemon like it was so random but I was just like um, you know how like a like a mama um, hen like causes a bunch of noise over here to distract the the mm -hmm. wolf or something from the kid you know to make sure the chicks don't get eaten. So that was me. I was like it was like a diversion. Like let's go over here. You know, take the cameras away from this situation. Now it's become about her case because you're trying to put my credibility on the line and ask a question that is like damned if I do, damned if I don't. So I'm gonna like just cut this and I'm going to walk away. I even left my purse there, which yeah, I like who does that? <laughs> but that's how that's how stressed out I was because I had set it down to do the interview and I was just like, you know, whatever it takes to like, I don't, I just don't want them catching her up in the video feed and, and make, you know, getting mm -hmm. my sister on camera when she's in this vulnerable position and, you know, going through this court case. Which, by the way, if, if you even Google, like, the NAACP statement on Rachel Dolezal, to this day, they have my back 100%. The national office and the regional office, 
Um, you know, they said she's enduring a private legal matter. Um, we should respect her privacy. And racial identity has never been a um, determining factor, or qualifying factor for leadership in the NAACP, nor is it, um, you know, a determining factor in ending somebody's leadership. So they really stood by my advocacy record and had my back, but the media never, never made that public. They just, they focused in on, you know, a few random members who were, you know, had a bone to pick and, and, you know, wanted to be negative and whatever. But anyway, so that's what was going through my mind. And, it, you now, know. Now, now, now yeah. how, so what you're saying is 10 hours after that video was taken, your life was changed. Your life was changed. So now, so now 10 hours after that, that happens. Everybody's coming at you. Everybody's telling you, you lied, you untruths, whatever. What do you say to the people out there? Because there are people on here, there are people that are going to watch this interview that say, why did you lie about, about your race? What, what, what would you say to those people? Because I, I have to ask that. What would you say to those people that say, well, you lied about, about that. What is your reasoning regarding that? And what would you say to them? Yeah, well, so I think there are different um, definitions of race, right? And so from that, from people who say you lied, clearly their definition is biological. That race is biological only, period. It's coded in your DNA, period. And that's that. Um, I don't believe that. And I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for that, um, you know, the feeling of betrayal or the feeling of mistrust because I never intended that. But what I really believe after teaching race and culture studies for a decade is that, you know, that's a fiction. Race, the whole idea of race is a lie. Like, really, that's the big lie, is the, the idea that human beings have such differences in hair texture, skin color, facial features, eye shape, that we can call these racial categories and then decide, like, you know, whose IQ is better. That's the whole, the whole concept of white supremacy is that there's this hierarchy of so-called racial groups. So if we, if we actually take that to science, the human race doesn't even meet the zoological requirements for separate races. So racially, I identify as human. I've always been clear about that. Culturally, I identify as black. Um, philosophically, I have black values and I'm, you know, proud of that fact. Um, and, you know, so I don't really vibe with white, white culture, capitalism, imperialism, nationalism, white supremacy. It's just not, you know, that, that doesn't describe who I am and how I live my life. Um, and, and, you know, like, so if, if people want to call that a lie, then I would just kind of, you know, push back a little bit like, okay, well, let's question the race worldview then. Is that not mm -hmm. the big lie? because that is the very fundamental thing that caused chattel slavery, that caused um, white expansion in North America to take over all the indigenous groups and land. Um, the idea that you are biologically different to the point of determining worth. Mm -hmm. And so I, I live my life in resistance to that view. And I also, um, yeah, I mean, I did a DNA test. It said 10% North African, 
you know, some people think Egypt is white. Some people think Egypt is black. <laughs> Egypt, is, Egypt is in Africa. Egypt is black. Um, I know, but, but on the U.S. census, it says North African ancestry is white. On the U.S. census. I'm just saying, like, whose definitions are we going with? Like, who told right. you you're black? Who told you you're white? Um, you know, we've got to question these things because they're at the foundation of racism. Well, I agree with that. Here, I have two questions, and then we're going to go on to, like, you know, issues that you want to tackle and, and stuff you want to talk about that's important. Um, have you ever, at any time, used, quote-unquote, white privilege, or have you always just stepped away from that? Because and, and, I know you said it throughout this interview, you, you, stopped, you stopped explaining, but it, was there any point in time that you actually did, you know, use, use the white privilege that you were afforded? Um, I would say in my marriage, I was, so I was married for five years to, um, a guy from Jackson, Mississippi, Kevin Moore, and that's Franklin's dad. So my middle son's dad, um, which by the way, he wanted to move from Washington DC where I graduated at Howard. He hated me going to Howard. He's very Eurocentric. You know, he's more of that, like half the, half the um, car that white, white people have, have the job that white people have, live in the white neighborhood. And that means success. And I was always like, the, you know, Afro like we just clashed. We just never, you know, we didn't have harmony in our marriage. Let's just say that. But, um, you know, he ha he actually put me out there a few times. Like he wouldn't let me braid my hair. He, um, you know, was like, you know, wanted me to bleach blonde, you know, highlight my bleach my hair out um, and then go to certain places like to get um a rental application for a condo or something like that like so he was always trying to kind of like conform me to look whiter and then mm -hmm. send me on the like family errands to you know because he's he always says he's too black for BET like he's really dark complected so um I think he had the idea of using that but for me personally after the marriage when I had my my personal agency back and I didn't feel like I was you know, tied to that religious mindset of submit to the man, do whatever the man says, um, without, without contest, without thought, um, then no, absolutely not. But I would say that, yes, there is definitely a degree of light skin privilege, you know, like having the green eyes and the freckles and all that stuff. Um, I think that that made some white people more comfortable around me than they may have been around a darker skin you know, darker skin sister, or, um, I think maybe too, just, you know, the way I talk, um, obviously people can kind of cash in on white privilege over the phone, <laughs> you know, if they, if they, you know, talk proper or whatever, <clears throat> I guess, um, you know, that's called talking white, but yeah. So, so I guess, you know, like those are the kind of situations, um, that, that I dealt with before and after, I would say, like, the, you know, kind of hard and fast transformation, if you will, of, of like, never never going back to, you know, looking white. But, yeah. So those are, you know. How, how uh, did, and my final question is, and then I want to just go to some of the stuff you want to talk about. How did all of this, because I watched the documentary, and I saw your kids. And... It reminded me of my kids in the respect that when you're somebody's parent, they always look at you like you're weird anyway. They always look at you like you're weird anyway. 
But how did yeah. this affect your children? Because, you know, the way that I saw it was like they were really over it. Uh, they were right. really hurt by you being assassinated and, and things like that. How did they, how did they, how did they deal with that? Yeah, so in the documentary, obviously, which was filmed, you know, five years ago, um, Franklin was 13 and 14. It was, it, they filmed for two years and we didn't get paid a dollar for that. Um, and that sucked. <laughs> that was one of the things that they're like, you, what what, you, didn't get, you didn't get paid to do that documentary? No, because so that's Franklin's main thing is he's like, well, 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 why, why, why did you do that? Did you? What was the reason that you didn't take a check for it? Is, is it that you were trying to prove something? What, what was it that made you say, I don't, I'm not going to no, take a check? So, so this is the thing. I never had a deal with Netflix. I only had a contract with this little, like, almost no-name film producer, right, Who for director, who was, you know, pitching doing this film, and she you, you had... Don't even, she, don't even talk about it. Just listen, don't even talk about it. Come to me the next time. Come to me. It's okay. I, it's okay. No, was, I, that, I've, that, learned, that I've learned from it. But suffice it to say that she told me that nobody ever gets paid for documentaries because then it will bias the subject matter in your favor, you know, like, so that you don't have to go through as much struggle, maybe, or whatever the case with the true life story, um, if you're actually getting paid. So anyway, all that to say, we didn't get paid, but I told her, I was like, all right, if we're not gonna get paid, you have to hire a black film crew. So I made her, you know, she hired a um, black cameraman. She had a whole black crew. So I was like, if we're not gonna get paid, somebody black is getting paid. <laughs> we're not gonna be running around with the all white film crew and we still don't get paid. And it just, you know, becomes one more thing for the system. But I also, as a professor, like I really believe in the um, objectivity of documentary filmmaking. And we agreed to that. Me and my kids and my sister agreed to do that project because we really felt like the short, the short little sound bites were not getting an accurate story out there. And so if we had more of a long form um, way of sharing our lives, maybe that could create a little bit more understanding, kind of fix this big old mess, you know, that, that is now going to live with us for, you know, what seems like forever. But that's why we agreed to do the documentary. And then, you know, of course, I, I wrote my book. So the book, you know, is really the only place where my voice lives unedited without somebody else's spin on it. Um, but, yeah, the book and the documentary were the only two projects that, that we did that year. First of all, um, put the book up so people can see that. So if they want to read up on it, put the book up real quick so they can see it. Just put the book up where they can see it. So, 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 so. That's the book. If you guys want to go get it, I'm sure it's on Amazon. It's probably wherever books and, and, and media is sold. Um, I like, for me, for me, once I saw that documentary, the whole reason for me bringing you here was so that you could say what you have to say. I had Candace Owens on not too long ago. I don't believe in just listening to one side. There's 151 people on here, and by the time I promote this, it'll be 15,000 or 30,000 or 40,000. They can listen to you. They now have their story. They now have the media story. They can make their own decision. I guarantee you, once you get off, we'll talk about this, and we'll probably talk about it tomorrow. Um, and that's why I did it. And, and, and I, really, I really felt some type of weight. For me, and I'll be honest with you, I, I ate 
a edible cookie that night. And I had to, I, I, I got, I had never got high before. I thought it was, I have a, I have a uh, edible company that I'm doing. And that uh-huh. night I was testing it out because the next day I was going to speak to Method Man. I right. watched the majority of it, but I overate the cookie. Me being stupid, uh-huh. I did something that I wasn't told to do. And I absolutely tripped out. So I had to watch it two days later. But when I watched it, I really absorbed the whole story and I walked away saying, listen, there's two, there's two parts of the story. With that being said, as much as you've discussed and as much as you've said, I personally feel, and I'm sure I'll have this conversation with people because um, the comments on you have been everything from she lied and to, to yo, I'm with you. And, and, and again, where I stand is, I don't give, I, no disrespect, I don't give a fuck because you, I can tell that your heart is pure, it's in the right place, in the right place, and you're doing the right thing. And I, and I clearly said, I, there's 50 people that I would trade for you in a, in a fucking minute. Moving forward, let's talk about things that, because you were the president of NAACP, what are the biggest issues that we're facing in the black community in your, in your mind right now here in 2020? Well, I think first and foremost is like the right to life, right? Um, personal safety, public safety, mass incarceration, that's a huge, a huge deal. Um, I think the ongoing goal is to achieve true independence and self-determination as individuals and as a community. But I also really believe that we've got to get more political representation. That's a huge, huge one. You know, the five game changer issues really are political representation, um, whether that means a black political party or um, not just like in color as far as politicians, but also in policy and black values, you know, going into really shift things in the political field. Um, number two is, is economic equity, um, reparations is part of that. Um, number three would be education inclusion, changing curriculum. We can't start with only fa- founding fathers. We need to start with human origins in the continent of Africa. We need to start with like our common African ancestry and build respect on that and teach you know black history, um, African American history as American history, you know, and include include that. Not just take the monuments down, but actually build it into the K through 12 curriculum. Um, and you know, health and healthcare equity is another big thing. I say that would be like number four. And then you know, back to like the mass incarcerate incarceration and public safety. I mean, slavery hasn't ended in America, truly. You know, the the slavery in another forum thing is for real. Um, with the 13th Amendment, and that's, you know, that's a driving issue ongoing. So th- those would be my five um, big black agenda issues going into the future. <laughs> Things that I think of, you know, for for my sons, you know, for their future. Um, when, when it comes to how they feel, my oldest son just really feels like my time and talents are wasted in America and I need to move out of the country because you know? <laughs> he's, um, he's studied abroad a lot. So he's just like, you know, leave America, quit America because um, they're never going to give you a chance. Okay, uh, so with, with that being said, I'm a man who travels to about 85 to 90 countries a year. Where, where, do, you think that, where do you think that you would be, the, be best served? What country? Is there a country particular country you think you'd be best served in? 
Well, I'm not so much worried about how I'm best served as much as that I'm I'm allowed to serve. You know, like I'm allowed to operate and and advocate um, in the ways that I'm you know good at doing. Um, I haven't actually traveled to 80 countries, so I can't really say um, yet. But I would definitely, if it was my pick, I would. And I didn't have any more kids left to raise. I would pick um, either Kenya, Nigeria, or South Africa. But because I have a, my four-year-old has autism, I also have to take that into consideration. And none of those countries actually have much in terms of autism awareness or reducing stigma or interventions. Um, so I'm trying to like balance that out. Like what's the best for Langston's life as he grows and evolves? You know, where, where am I going to find that, you know, that sweet spot of being, being allowed to, to blossom and, you know, do me and, do the work that I'm so passionate about, but also most importantly, where is he going to be able to grow up and thrive? Because once he's grown, I can always get back to doing my thing when I'm, you know, when I'm old, when I'm older. <laughs> I'm already in my 40s, so I already feel like I'm, you know, you, aging you, quickly. You, you, got, you got time. I think, yeah. my personal opinion, you would be best served in England. That's my personal England. opinion. I, I definitely think you, you'd have an ear there. Um, I think England or Canada, you would be best served because the 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 vibration is not as harsh as here. I think they would hear you more. I think that people would be more accepting. If you were still in the NAACP, what would you be doing about it? Doing about all these issues today? I would definitely be um, championing those five game changer issues at the forefront and organizing active uh, like actions in each branch and each chapter i just feel like there's a lot of meetings that just are a lot of talk you know people are talking people are tired of just having zoom calls right but people are also just tired of going to meetings and just talking about the issues we need to actually be doing things setting up an action plan in every city every state you know, that's unified across the country because without collective action, we can't push the needle, whether it's on a presidential election or whether it's on uh, police reform or anything else. We've got to have the numbers. We've got to come together and really be able to see, like, who's racist, who's not racist, you know, like who's for e equity and inclusion, who's against it. And those are like the true colors of the, that, that I feel like really should be the dividing line in America. And, you know, all these little petty, you know, tit for tat and little fights and arguments, I think, have have been tearing our community down for years and years. You know, a lot of activists have been torn down through some little scandal type thing, um, some little issue that somebody has. Um, and then we lose momentum. You know, we lose momentum for the cause. So I think coming together is is huge and and not just not just showing up on TV or talking about things, but actually doing the work. So I actually made a couple little booklets that are free on my website, racheldozal.com. One is about um, what I believe every community should do for the, the policing issue. You know, so you can like get that booklet and go to your city council meeting and read from it if you want to or whatever. It's some ideas in there. Um, and then the other one is just how to combat hate, racism and prejudice just for everyday people that want to do something beyond protesting. So, yeah. I think that's, I think that's dope. I, I think that's dope. And I, and I want to say something, and, and I'm 
once once I do a couple of different things and I move to another, I'm gonna move. I'm, I'm probably soon gonna get a house or something or whatever I'm gonna do. I am going to buy one of your pictures. Don't I don't know how much it costs, but you gonna have to you gonna have to whisper in my ear and be like, it costs forty five hundred dollars. But but I'm gonna buy one. People, I highly suggest you go watch this documentary. This woman can paint her ass off. Now, you can say whatever you want to say. There's a bunch of different things that you guys can go to on the internet. They said this, they said that, they said this, they said that. Whatever you want to say. All I'm all I'm all I want to say is this. I'm going with what I see, I'm going with what I hear, I'm going with what was being presented to me, and I and I know what I just heard for about an hour and a half. And for those who were here when I interviewed the gangster Johnny A Light. It sounded like when I was interviewing Johnny A, like names, places, locations, facts, facts, facts. You guys take it however you want to take it. And we will, I know when you leave, you know, because I don't want to open it up for questions for you. Maybe later on, another time you can come back and do questions. I just think that I want to leave it here. I also, I, one, one thing, and people, again, just go watch, go check out that documentary and, talk, and check out her artwork. That shit is banging. And she's not drawing with a fucking pencil and drawing stick, people. She's going hard. Like, that's that's oil on canvas hard. And, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. When I saw your, your artwork, I was mesmerized by it. I was like, she's dope. Um, final thing. You changed your name. You changed your name. So the next time you come through here, I'm going to call you by your new name. So can you, number one, tell everybody what your, what your new name is? Because I couldn't pronounce it. And I didn't want to say it wrong. And I want to know what was the process? Why did you do it? And, and of course, we know what the process is. You go down to the court and whatever. But what made you take it to that step? Because when I watched the documentary, I said, this is a woman truly living in her, in her, in her truth. And when I saw that, I, I applauded it because a lot of times... When people live in their truth, their family members are unhappy. Uh, you know, the people closest to them are unhappy. And in the face of all that, you said, listen, I'm going to do what the fuck I want to do because I got to live in my truth. And no matter what nobody got to say about that, I respect it. So, it. so walk me through, of course, first your name and why you chose to do that. Yeah, so I changed my name in 2016, four years ago, to Nkechi Diallo. And Nkechi is short for Nkechi Nyeri, which was given to me from the Igbo tribe in Nigeria. Um, they reached out actually in 2000, the end of 2015, and just said simply like, we see who you are, and we believe you are a high frequency Nubian spirit incarnated this time in this life into a white envelope in order to traumatize white su supremacy spiritually. And so we're going to give you the name in Kachinieri because you're a gift from God. And I you know I thought about when I was when I came to the the decision to change my name for the purpose of a, you know I still can't get a job. It's been 5 years. So everybody's like she lied, she lied, blah blah blah. Like how long do I need to be punished? Like answer that question. How long does a mom not be allowed to work? You know, yes, I've created my own job with my art and braiding hair and whatever. I've grinded and hustled my ass off to feed these kids and keep things going. 
but I still can't even get a job as a maid at a hotel, you know, like literally because of the stigma of not just Rachel Dolezal, but now when I show up, you know, yeah, that me changing my name did help me get more interviews. But when I show up to an interview, no matter how my hair is, people are like, oh, she's that woman. <laughs> so, um, and, and they don't want to have, they don't want to be the first one to hire Rachel Dolezal or in KG Diallo because on Wikipedia, it's the same, you know, like you Google one and the, the other one, the other name is right there. So, but I also really, um, really love that, that meaning. Like I felt like I was seen, my spirit was seen when I received that email with the name in KG. Like you are a gift to this world. You're here to break down white supremacy and, you know, it was an affirmation that I felt like was important to to adopt, you know, to receive in that way of taking it as my name. So I didn't like name myself or, you know, some weird process, whatever people think. But also um, Rachel means lamb and Dolajal means to lie down. So like my my name literally kind of meant like a sacrificial lamb. <laughs> like, you know, like I'm done being a martyr for it. You know, like I'm done just like like. You know, being a lamb taken to the slaughter, I was feeling like I'd gone through all that, sh all that shit in the press and just being dragged and having, you know, run over by the bus and the bus backs up and runs back over you again. And like, everybody just piling on. And so I felt like, um, you know, maybe I don't want to really be Rachel Dolezal anymore, you know, as far as the, the meaning of that name, maybe that was given to me out of, a, you know, a, from a, from a hostile spiritual perspective from my biological parents who are you know racist so um i yeah i love the name in keichi diallo i feel like i also want to protect it i don't want to just change all my social media to that and and you know switch over because there's still so much stigma and hate and controversy and i don't really want that name to get caught up in that hater raid and that controversy um, publicly on my social media and stuff. So I kind of, you know, I'm just, hey, I have a, a public name and I have a mm -hmm. private name. Let me tell you something. Yeah. And again, I'm going to say this and a lot of people, I don't, I don't, I can agree to disagree with people mm -hmm. and there may be people who Never come back to this Instagram live again because I interviewed you. I'm ready. I'm ready for that. I live with that. There more people will come. Right. I'm gonna tell you something, and I mean this. I mean this, and I'm dead ass saying it to you on the record. If I ever get to a place where I got positions, I will offer you a job. Dead ass. If I turn around one day and I got something that makes sense and it works, I will. I, I, I will give you a job. In the interim, you are almost like a felon coming home from jail. It is now up to you to go to forget. Throw the idea of getting a job out the window. Fuck that. Fuck that. Right. This has to be about you creating a line of work and a line of business whether it, your face is in the middle of it or whether it's something on the internet that's behind the scenes that you can make money off. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Number two is you have so much passion and so much belief and so much truth in what you're saying 
if you put that online and you market that correctly, somebody's fucking coming. If I can help you with that, once I learn, once I learn the full way of how to manipulate this shit, I will help you. Because I believe in one thing, what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And personally, I don't give a fuck. You, how long are you going to vilify somebody for a lie? There's people out here There's people out here on the Democratic and the Republican side lying like a motherfucker, and they're still in office. Tell you, I, one of my favorite records in the world is Wake Up Everybody by, by Howard Melvin and the Blue Notes. Right? And I know you know that because you know the shit. I, know, I, I don't even have to ask. You are, you're of that age, and I know you know that shit. The man said in that song, politicians, stop lying about lying. Okay? You have, you have, in my mind, you have taken responsibility for what was said. You explain your position. People either like it or they don't fucking like it. Period. As far as I'm concerned, I am going to get on this Instagram right now. When you leave, you can, you can walk on out of here and you can watch me fight these people. I stand by what I stand. And one of the first things that I told you when I spoke to you was, I am not that dude. If I told you I'm, 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 I support you and I'm up here, I'm going to do it. Do that. That's the reason why I went through that long-ass uh, diatribe when we first got on. Because I'm, I, I believe in you. I believe that you have something to offer. And I don't give a fuck what nobody thinks. Fuck them, fuck them, fuck them, fuck them. I walk by myself. I did it before and I do it again. And I believe that you have something to offer. If there's anything that I could personally do, I'm going to do this shit. Uh, is there anything you want to say before you walk on out the door and I fight these people? <laughs> oh, I agree with you. Like like Malcolm X said, you know, if they, if they won't give you a job, make your own job. And I've worked really hard to do that. And I've, you know, um, actually his oldest daughter reached out to me in july of 2015 and just said like don't forget who you were in may of 2015 don't let this shape you and um you know she knows all too well what what the media can do to twist somebody's legacy uh, especially when they're fighting on the front line so you know i've i've definitely um had some support that's meant a lot to me and the the support that means the most of course is my kids um, their support and unlike the like the documentary didn't really show their full support I think I think the director tried to kind of like you know create more tension and drama with playing certain scenes out a certain kind of way but um, you know they're they're my biggest support system and I and I'm really proud of them and um, you know they're, they're gonna go on and do big things and hopefully the world will let them do whatever they don't want to let me do let my sons do it, you know? So, but yeah. I'm here to fight and I'm here to do, you know, what I can in my lifetime. And, you know, like, like I said, um, if, if you don't agree with my, my reasons, with my beliefs about the race issue, um, maybe we can agree to disagree and maybe we can still work together because I think that, that there's a lot of common ground. We care about the same causes. You know, if you're for racial and social justice issues, if you want police brutality to end, if you want education reform, if you want to undo mass incarceration and privatization of prisons and all these things, right, then let's work together because we need all hands on deck right now. We've gotten the clock turned back a few years or a few decades or whatever um, with, with COVID and with 
you know, my opinion, Trump, you know, some of the stuff that he's put in policy. Um, so we've got work to do and I'm ready to work. So, you know, let me back, let me back in the game and, and I'll do everything I can. So that's I'm all gonna, I got to say about that. I'm going to say something. There's something I'm going I'm to I'm send you in the DM. I, we talked about it before, but I think there's an opportunity, a money opportunity there for you. And also, I think there's another documentary there for you. This go round, this go round, put you with the right people, do your thing, let you, let you go do your thing. Final question, because it's on my head. With the Dolazar name, do your kids feel it? Do they, because you just said that, do your kids get shut down? Do they get, are they noticed? Are they, are they targeted? Do, do they deal with issues because of you? I mean, I know with the face, but do people catch it with the name? With my oldest son, he has that name. So Isaiah does have that name, and he has to deal with that. And that's um, why he's found a lot more acceptance and even feels safer studying abroad. He's been in South Africa. He's been in Spain. He just came back from England um, a week ago, actually, from doing his master's degree. He's going to go to Australia to do law school and mm -hmm. wants to do international law. You know, um, so he definitely feels that way, not only, you know, in terms of the like public safety issues and police brutality. He doesn't feel as threatened in the U.K. or other countries <laughs> as in the U.S., right? but also the Dolajal name is definitely, you know, sometimes he feels like he can't just be himself, you know, and, and be seen for him. It's always like, oh, well, people want to know, like, more about the real the real scoop on your mom, you know, type of thing. And for Franklin, my middle son, he has his dad's last name. So Franklin Moore, you know, nobody's going to know that he's even my son unless he brings it up or if they happen to recognize him. But he looks a lot different. He's all grown from that documentary. He went on to play football, run track, become this big macho, you know, dude with a whole bunch of friends in high school. <laughs> and uh, he's got his letterman's jacket all ripped with pins. So, you know, he, he, had, a, he had a good run and he's doing well in college. And... Um, I think he'll, he, he doesn't have to deal with the name. Franklin's thing more is, though, like, Mom, stay relevant because I, I might have to, like, use your platform sometime to, you know, become a, a celebrity personal trainer or whatever <laughs> he wants to go. So he's kind of more like, I don't care if it, I don't care if they're haters. I don't care how people feel. Just make money. And that's, that's his philosophy. So that's, you know, he's kind of on, on a different on a different wavelength than Isaiah. And um, meanwhile, I just, I keep doing what I, what I need to do in my own integrity and with my own ethics and values. Um, I'm not gonna change that. The paid, the paid positions, or not positions, but paid opportunities that I got were reality TV and porn. And I was not willing to do either one of those because they're both, you know, feeding more into the, the trash crap narrative. It's just not who I am. So, um, you know, reality TV is anything but real. And I'm all about correcting this narrative, getting it to accuracy enough to the point where we can just never talk about Rachel's identity again. That'd be awesome. Like, I don't need to talk about it. You don't have to call me black. You don't have to call me anything. I don't care if you call me white. I still know who I am, you know, and but let me let me do the work. Like, let me join the team and, you know, stay in my lane and play my play my position and you play yours and we'll get this work done, you know, for our kids. So listen, I got a I got a couple of ideas. 
probably to today because I'm going to go and decompress after this and I'm going to go fight these people. So just let me go fight these people. You can watch, you cannot watch, you can do what you want. We will talk later. I thank you for coming through. Um, because I'm on my other device, you have to let yourself out the back door. Make sure the door is locked. Just hit the X and let yourself on out the back door. We'll talk later. Will do. Peace. Okay. Talk to you later. Um, wow. What, what interview, man? Um, Rachel Dolezal. Make Noise with Fat Man Scoop is produced by myself alongside Raj Kachetcha and the team at creativecontentagency.com. Please support this podcast by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I love that. And by following this podcast on Spotify and sharing links to episodes you enjoy with your friends. Do it. You can also email the show via podcast at fatmanscoop.com. I answer that. Or you can DM me at Fat Man Scoop. Yes, I answer DMs.